Well, I, I can't think of probably a lot of things more that would more quickly and more easily divide a room of Christians than the subject of the Holy Spirit. Um, but by God's grace, that's not going to be what's going to happen with, with this. Uh, let, let me illustrate how controversial this subject of the Holy Spirit is. Uh, if you Google, have you guys heard of Babylon B? Have you guys read any of the Babylon? It's like a, a fake news um, kind of a website where they, they just kind of make these um, hilarious, you know, news, uh, fake news stories, basically. And if you just type in Holy Spirit, and most of them centered around kind of evangelicalism and the whole subculture of evangelicals, if you type in Holy Spirit into their uh, the search engine in Google, th- this is the, the top ones that come up. So these are like fake headlines, okay? Here's the first one. Holy Spirit appears at Baptist service, asked to sit in overflow room. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? Local pastor's description of the Holy Spirit, identical to the force from Star Wars. <laughs> we with the ooze today. What? Uh, it, it, it is ooze. Okay. Man, man called by Holy Spirit to do the exact thing he wanted to do. <laughs> pretty common. Holy Spirit, unable to move through congregation as fog machine breaks. (laughs) We have a fog machine, by the way. It's not ours, but it's over there. So one of these days, you know, you'll come in and be like, whoa. Just kidding. That'll never happen. Um, Here's another one. Outpouring of the Holy Spirit coincides with key change. It's it's true. You musicians. Holy Spirit once again prevents man from tweeting. Here's the last one. Power of God waits in church foyer until chorus of Holy Spirit. Pretty funny. So we laugh at those, right? We laugh. Why do we laugh? We laugh because they're, they're true. And they kind of poke fun at both sides of, of, of maybe some of the divides within Western Christianity. Um, and, and, and they kind of tell us a little bit about some of the confusion, right? About how we think about the Holy Spirit. I just bring that up to say this series is needed because there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of unanswered questions. We need to sift in this series, in the next five weeks, we need to sift through and try to determine what is nature and what is nurture. And what what I mean by that is, what is the real organic design of God the Father through God the Spirit in the local church? What's the real stuff, the stuff that God's doing? And what is the cultural weird stuff, the cultural constructs, the stuff that we just do because we do it? What, where, where is that line? What is of God and what is not regarding the Holy Spirit? I think we err on both sides, don't we? In, in the West, we err um, on one side that has in many ways downgraded the Holy Spirit from God himself to some sort of a tube to be squeezed or a force to be manipulated or controlled. But then we have other Christians within evangelicalism that see the Holy Spirit as something too messy to mess with, right? Or, or, or too feely uh, to focus on or too ambiguous to apply. Uh, The Holy Spirit thing's just too confusing. Let's just sort of not think about it. Just not go there. Others, I think, in an attempt to swing back from from a neglect of the Holy Spirit, have have gone so far that they've made the Holy Spirit into something that he never intended for himself to be made of. And then again, others, out of fear to, to maybe make a mess, they don't engage with these things called spiritual gifts or these realities of the Holy Spirit at all. So where is the center? Where is truth? Where is reality? Where does the Bible nudge us into compliance with the reality of the organic life of the Holy Spirit within the local body of the church? Where is that place? How do we find it? That's what I'm hoping to engage with over the next five weeks with you guys. I I, I am choosing to reject the dichotomy that the Holy Spirit is just there for people that tend to be more emotionally wired and that the Holy Spirit is only working when you're feeling something. I reject that dichotomy, and I also reject that the Holy Spirit doesn't have in any way feelings for us or doesn't have a tangibility in any way that we can experience. I reject that. The false dichotomy is, is, is that to say that you, you know, either you have a feelings-based Christianity or you have a mind-based Christianity. I say I want both. Yes, I want to feel the Lord. Yes, please. I want to feel the Lord. I want to know his presence. I want to hear from the Lord. I also want to use my brain. I don't want to shut off my brain when the fog machine kicks on, right? Where is the middle ground? Where is the place that God would have us to be as a church, as a spirit-filled church that makes space for the spirit of God to glorify the son of God and to execute the plan of the father of God in this place and in these people? 
That's where we want to find. That's where we want to find ourselves. The kind of questions that we're going to ask is, obviously, who is the Holy Spirit? We'll ask that today. Is he God? Or is he just the hand of God? What does it mean to be spirit-filled? Have you ever wondered that? Is there some kind of a second baptism or a second blessing that we're supposed to be receiving? We'll interact with that. What does the Holy Spirit do? What are the spiritual gifts? You ever wondered about that? What does it mean to be spiritual? We need to give some definition to that word, okay? How do we hear the Spirit lead and talk? Does the Spirit work, this is a big one, does the Spirit work today in the way that he did in the Gospels and in the book of Acts? Guys, these are questions that I've wrestled with, that Christians have wrestled with, ever since the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And I'm not going to promise you that we're going to answer all these questions completely, but we're going to do our best each week to interact with what the Bible does say regarding these particular issues. And my prayer is not that we would divide with this series, but rather that we would delight in the fullness of who God is within the Trinity and the Godhead, this third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that this would bring us to faith and worship and repentance and supernatural love for one another and the fruit of the Spirit, that as we examine this person of the Trinity, that it would not divide, it would bring us to a delightful place of worship and glory to God. That's what we're chasing after. I'm not going to be able to say it all from up here, and that's exactly why uh, Ryan and I, the leadership, decided to create small groups that would meet during the course of this series so that you guys, within your gatherings, will hopefully have the ability to really talk through and wrestle with some of these big questions. So what I'm going to try to do in these teachings is set a groundwork and sort of set a trajectory for you guys. In the handout that you have, you have discussion questions that will be for your group this week. If you uh, forget that or throw it away by accident, it's, it's posted right on the front page of our website. Just click the button. It'll take you right to it. And those questions will be there for you guys to interact with in your, in your groups. So that's my introduction to the series. Let's talk about today's teaching. Today, our assignment, our focus is going to be to try to define and get our hands around the edges of who the person of the Holy Spirit is. Not so much what he does, that will be actually the whole rest of the series. The next four teachings will be what the Holy Spirit does and how he works. This morning, I mostly want to interact with the idea of who the Holy Spirit is. And now I'm just going to warn you, uh, this is going to feel a lot less like a sermon and a lot more like a lecture. So it might feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, but just open your mouth and hope for the best, okay? It might <laughs> blast you across the street. I don't know. We'll see. But we need to get this right. And let me just say, we serve a big God, don't we? So, so there's big thoughts that need to be thought if we're going to comprehend or worship a big God. Let's think big thoughts this morning. So our approach for this morning, now typically we just work through a passage of scripture. That's how we almost always do it. But with this particular sermon, we're going to have to come at it a little more systematically. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to give you a definition that when you first read it will be completely confusing. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking that definition line by line so that hopefully by the end of this morning, you guys feel like you have a working understanding of who the person of the Holy Spirit is. So here's the definition. I put it in your handout if you would like to read along. Here's my definition. This is not the only definition. It's probably not even the best definition, but it's just the one that I felt was the best I could come up with. The Holy Spirit is a mysterious yet distinct person within the shared essence of the Trinitarian Godhead. He is sent or was sent by the collective will of said Godhead as an agent to prepare the coming of Christ and thereafter produce the resulting fruit from his work. So we're going to take that line by line. That definition will be our outline. We're going to work through it and try to explain it. Hopefully by the end, you guys will have a, a working understanding of who this person of the Holy Spirit is. So the first thing, if you'd want to write it down, first thing we need to know about the Holy Spirit is that he is a mystery. He is a mystery. It's very important that we start here. You need, no, you need to look no further to make this point that he is a mystery than the very name that we use for the Holy Spirit itself. The Greek word for 
spirit that is used in the New Testament is pneuma. Can you guys say pneuma? It's uh, actually where we get the study of the Holy Spirit, which is pneumatology. Not to be confused with numerology. That's weird stuff. Uh, Studying numbers and things. Pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Pneuma, the Greek word for spirit, can mean many things. It can mean the soul. It can mean the life of something. It can mean immateriality, meaning non-physical. It can mean breath. It can mean air, or as I already said, life. So the Greek Septuagint translates Genesis. It says God breathed his spirit into Adam and Eve. He breathed some of his life into them. The Hebrew word for spirit, because you guys know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament mostly Greek. Uh, The Old Testament word for Hebrew is ruach. And you have to do the Klingon thing at the end. Ruach. Yeah, like, yeah. Like Tim Mackey says, like, you're going to hawk a loogie, right? Ruach. Ruach. Anyways, that's really how they say it. Okay. Anyway, it, it's, it's R-E-U-O-C-H, in case you want to write down. Uh, and it's breath, it's wind. Now, I bring that up to make the simple point that think about all of the, the words that these Greek and Hebrew words describe. Soul, immateriality, breath, life. What do all those things have in common? You can't see them. They're confusing. They're unknowable to some degree. They're mysterious. The very name of the Holy Spirit, in essence, is very hard to understand. And we need to start here, lest we get a little too big for our britches and go, oh, yeah, we have the Holy Spirit figured out. No, we don't. What did Jesus say in John 3, 8? He told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. In other words, we're talking about things that are mysterious here this morning. We're talking about an an element of of a God who lives outside of our dimensionality. Can Can we start there and just recognize that? But we're also talking about a part of God that is described by the word used for life itself. So there is life in this discussion. God's life, God's zoe life, God's breath is here available for us this morning. But I want to start with this fact that it's a mystery because I want to introduce a little bit of humility here and just say, Father, we don't understand your spirit. We only understand what you've revealed to us. I want to introduce a little bit of awe this morning that what we're about to discuss is not very clear. When, when we talk about things outside of our dimension, We need to realize that we don't have the right hardware to actually interface with these realities. Do you know what I mean by that? It's kind of like if I could somehow take a Cat6 network cable from our our, our internet and run it back to 200 BC and I'd say, here, plug this in and you'll have internet. They're like, what's internet? See, they don't have a computer on the other side to take all those ones and zeros and turn them into something that would display on a screen. There's no interface. It's out of their dimension. They don't have the ability to do that. So in the same way, when we're talking about eternal God and his spirit, we're really outside of our dimension. Here's another example. I want you guys to to close your eyes and picture the color Melrose. Can you picture that color? Can you see it? Why can't you see it? Well, because I made it up, but... That's, but let's just say there was a color. Doesn't this sound like a color? Melrose. I like it. Let's just say there's a color called Melrose, and, and, and you can't see it. Why can't you see it? You can't even picture it. Because it's a color you don't have the ability, the hardware to see. You see where I'm going with that? There, there are colors in God's new creation, in God's new heaven, and, and probably in, in, in heaven right now, there are colors and realities that you don't, your eyes literally are not capable of seeing. Guys, we're talking about a God we don't have the hardware to fully understand. That's why Paul said we look through a glass, what? Dimly. Okay, so we just need to stop and just acknowledge that we don't understand all these things. But we'll do our best. And my friend Dana Hankins in one of our small groups this week mentioned that if, if God was easy to comprehend, it would be really hard to worship him, wouldn't it? And really hard to believe him because it would sort of be like we made him up. God is so much bigger than we are. Now, the Father 
is a little easier to understand because he's all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. He, he, he shows up all over the place, and we have a personification. Father, right? We can understand that. Yahweh, God, he shows up through the Old Testament. The Son, a little easier. We have Jesus walking the earth for 33 years, and we have four Gospels describing his life. Okay, I can get that. But the Spirit... Where do we go to see the Spirit? How do we see the Spirit? Well, I would suggest that even though it seems harder, what we have is we have 2,000 years, more than that really, of fingerprints. Use Jesus' analogy. When a sail is full, what do you assume? There's wind there. We see the Spirit at work. We see his hands all over all kinds of things. We see his hands even in the lost world calling and drawing people. We see his hands in the church working constantly. We see the fruit of the Spirit. We see the gifts of the Spirit. And we can learn a lot about the Spirit by simply looking at what he does. And that's a lot of what we're going to do in this series. So, number one, he is a mystery. Number two, you want to write it down, and this is important, he is a distinct person. He is a distinct person. This is important work. Let's get into this. The spirit is not the following. He is not an energy. Star Wars is not where you should be getting your idea of what the force is, although I think a lot of Christians really do. It's, I call it Jedi Knight Christianity. So you're like walking around and you're just like, how do I tap into the force? The force. <laughs> it's a person and it's God. It's not a force. Okay, he's not a force. He's not an energy to harness. That's Eastern religious thought. Get that out of this. There's no room for that in Christianity. He is not simply, listen, he is not simply God the Father in a different shape. That's a heresy that's been around for a long time. It's called modalism. You can remember that because they believe God just simply takes different modes. So it's a, it's a hard monotheism that says, really, God is just one. There's no trinity, and he takes different forms. You get into that some kind of thinking if you try to use things like um, water and ice and fog to describe the Godhead. Well, it's the same thing in different forms. That's not really what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is not just the tangible or experiential hand of God, although there's some truth to that. That's not a good enough explanation of him. He's not just the presence of God. Again, you're getting into strict monotheism, meaning there's no distinction there if you say that. He's not just the soul of God. And he is definitely not, as some have preached, a created person from God. He is co-eternal, as we'll see. So how do we know the spirit is a person? And why does that matter? By the way, when I say person, I don't mean created being. Okay, someone doesn't have to be a created being to be a person. Well, how do we know that? Well, God is a person. And our personhood is mirroring his person. We were made in his image. He's a person, so he made people. Okay? So how do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, the classic approach of, of deciding what a, or who a person is is that a person needs to have three basic things. Okay? Intelligence, some more than others, will, that's a joke, uh, intelligence, will, and emotion. Those three things, intelligence, will, and emotion. If you have those three things, then uh, classically you can be understood as a person. Okay, well, does the Holy Spirit have those three things? Do we see in Scripture? Because if he doesn't, then he's just a force. If he doesn't, then he's just energy. If he doesn't, then he's just the hand of God. But if he has his own unique blueprint, his own unique personhood, then he would contain these three things. Well, let's consider it. First of all, intelligence. Now, I wrote this in your handout. I'm just going to read it to you because we don't have time to flip to all these. But what about intelligence? Look at what Jesus says in John 14, 26. He says, but the helper, that's the paraclete, okay, para meaning coming alongside, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will what? Teach. He'll teach you all the things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Can a force teach? Can substance teach? I think a person teaches, a mind teaches. He's saying the Holy Spirit will come and will teach you, instruct you. There's intelligence there, right? What about a will? Does the Holy Spirit have a will? Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says all these, speaking of the gifts, all these were empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he notes it, or note it, wills. The spirit has a will. He wills how he divvies out the gifts. And when he works 
in the gifts within the body. Though he has intelligence, he has a will, and lastly, he has emotion. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Can I grieve that microphone right there? No, why? Because it's a thing. It's a substance. It's not a person. A person can be grieved. According to Paul, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. He feels. He thinks. He desires. He has a will. You put these three things together, and what do you get? You don't get a force. You don't get a tube. You get a person. A person. A few other texts you can take note of on your own time that help us to understand this is in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says he's praying that, another, that he is going to send another helper, meaning separate, another helper. He doesn't say, I'm going to come in another form, the Holy Spirit. Or he doesn't say, the Father's going to come in another form. He says, I'm going to send another person, the Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 19, the Holy Spirit said to Peter when he was on the rooftop, okay, Forces don't speak. People speak. Persons speak. And then lastly, in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias um, hid and took some money that, that he said he gave, uh, what, what was the indictment? The indictment was, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Okay? This is a person we're talking about. Sam, so what? Why does it matter? It matters because when we consider how to interact with the Holy Spirit, we need to remember that he's a person. We need to consider how would you feel if someone treated you like you were a substance to be manipulated? Anyone ever been treated like a substance? Anyone ever been treated like you were just, just for what you could give rather than who you were? Or perhaps if you don't understand he's a person, then you don't have a relationship with him. The Holy Spirit is a person. We shouldn't ignore him. We shouldn't manipulate him. He's not a substance. He is a person. Number three, write it down. Not only is he a mystery and a distinct person, he is, and this is important, this is like theology bedrock here. He is a member of the Godhead. The Godhead is the Trinity, okay? Now, we can't stop at personhood. What, what happens if we just stop and say, okay, the Holy Spirit's a person, but I don't know if he's God, and many cults do that. What happens if we stop there? Well, if we stop there, first of, all, we're, first of all, we're completely out of bounds with Scripture. Because as I'll show you in the moment, Scripture clearly shows the Holy Spirit is God. If we stop there, we will become pluralists. What is a pluralist? Multiple gods. God the Spirit, God the Son, God the Father, they're all completely separate. That's not Trinitarian. That's pluralism. If we stop there, um, we will become, in many ways, pantheists. Pantheists believe that God is all things and all things are God. Okay, we don't believe that. We're not, we're not any of those, those modes, okay? What we believe is one of the most confusing things you'll ever try to understand because we're talking about God here, is we believe that God is three, listen, three distinct persons, one essence. Three distinct persons, one essence. Cleared this up in the third century because there was a lot of heresies largely surrounding the nature of the Holy Spirit and the nature of God the Son. And what, what had to constantly be done is they had to constantly live within this tension that the Scripture puts us in that forces us to say, this is true and this is true. God is both a person, the Holy Spirit is a person, and he's God. He's distinct, yet he's the same. Put that together and you get Trinitarian theology. The same is true of Jesus. He is fully God and he is fully man. How do those two things work together? I don't know. It's outside of our dimension. But if you err from one side to the other, you've lost it. You, you, you've gone astray. You've gone off the rails. So he is God. And let me show you how we know that. Now, there's no one line in the Bible that says the Holy Spirit is God. You're not going to find that. Okay? That would be too easy. Uh, what you're going to find is you're going to find references that cannot mean anything else. And when you put those together with the verses that have to mean he's a distinct person, then what you get? You, you get our orthodox theology of God the Spirit. That's what, that's what you get. So how do we know that he's God? Let me give you three scriptural reasons, and there's more. Um, by the way, if you're ever looking to nerd out on this kind of stuff, I would recommend Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. You can pick it up at uh, the Bible bookstore for 20, 30 bucks. I think there's even a free downloadable version online somewhere. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. Anyways, uh, here's three scriptural reasons that we believe the Holy Spirit is God. First of all, and I think I put them in there for you. 
He shares specific attributes with the Father that, ontologically speaking, can only be possessed by God. Okay, there are certain attributes that the Holy Spirit possesses that he cannot possess if he's not God. Let me give you three. First of all, omniscience. What is omniscience? Omniscience means he knows everything. Only God knows everything. Only God has no limits to his knowledge. Okay, let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Listen, for the Spirit searches everything. Everything. Even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. In other words, only God understands God's mind. Because the spirit within the Trinity, within the Godhead itself, understands the thoughts of the Godhead. Okay? He has omniscience. Secondly, he has eternality. Hebrews 9.14 tells us and calls us or calls him the eternal spirit. Okay? In order for him to be God, he needs to be eternal. And according to Hebrews, he is eternal. And I'll give you one more. He's omnipresent. That means he can be everywhere. Psalm 139 tells us that. David said, your spirit is everywhere. Your spirit is with me in all places. So that's one reason we know the spirit is God. Secondly, you guys okay? Are you tracking? You find Anybody need coffee? You're okay? Okay. Bathroom? No? Okay. Okay. Uh, it's a joke. He is placed, secondly, he is placed in parallel with the Father and the Son in such a way that can only be understood as presupposing his deity. Here's a really famous example of that. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, I'm sending you to all nations to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those are grouped together in such a way that there really is no separating them. Okay? Paul's benediction, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Paul says, the grace of the Lord Jesus and Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. All three loops them all together and there's a ton more like that. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit takes part in activity that is ascribed to God alone. The Holy Spirit does things that only God can do. First, salvation. The Holy Spirit can save. Only God can save. We see that in Romans 8, 10 and 11. Uh, creation. We'll look at this in a moment. The Holy Spirit takes part in creation, Genesis 1.1. And lastly, spiritual revelation, okay? And that's Ephesians 1. The Spirit reveals the mind of God. So for all these reasons and many more, we cannot get around the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. Listen, guys, it's not like some old dead guys in the third century were like, I got an idea. Let's make a really confusing thing called the Trinity. That doesn't make any logical sense at all. Three distinct persons in one, let's do that. Trust me, they were like, oh. But why do we have that theology? Because there's no other way to take all of the relevant passages and keep them other than to say, these things must both be true outside of our dimension. It's actually not a cop-out. You know, if you're you're critical of um, theology and you're critical of the Bible, um, I would, I would challenge you to say the fact that we as Christians as a whole over the last 2,000 years have been willing to live in the tension of something like the Trinitarian theology actually says that we hold this thing in pretty high regard because thousands of heretics have come up in the church trying to change it to make it a little bit more logical to them or a little bit more palatable, a little bit more something we can swallow. And, and, and constantly the church, guided by the Holy Spirit, has had to go over and over and over again and say, no, that's not right. God is one. In essence, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There's no other way to get at it if you're being honest with Scripture. I would encourage you guys to study this more on your own. Um, as Christians, we really should know this stuff. We really should. And unfortunately, there's a very much a spirit of laziness within Western evangelical. We just kind of go, yeah, yeah, my, this one guy said it one time in the pulpit, and I believe it, and that's fine. Study your Bible. Be ready to answer questions. Be ready to engage on these things. We need to be able to understand these things to the level that the Bible allows us, right? So, He is also a member of the Godhead. Number four, and here's where we're going to talk a little bit more about what he does. He is a sent agent of the Trinitarian Godhead. He is a sent agent. The Holy Spirit 
is God, sent by God into this world for a particular purpose. And I want to talk about two subpoints underneath that. And you can write them down. First of all, the Holy Spirit was sent to prepare for the coming of Christ. And I don't mean the second coming of Christ, the one that you're saving freeze-dried meals for. I mean the first, some of you, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. Uh, first coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. The, the Spirit was sent to prepare the first advent of Christ. And we'll talk about it in a minute. He also is sent to produce the resulting fruit from Christ. Let's start with the first. The Holy Spirit was sent to prepare the coming of Christ. Now, he does way more than all this stuff. We're going to talk about that the next four weeks, okay? But let me just give you a brief overview of where we see the Holy Spirit working through Scripture. The Spirit of God has been overseeing the redemptive work of God since the beginning of creation. Isn't that cool? Go to Genesis 1.1. I don't hear any Bible pages. must all be phones. Nobody, I was like, no, I'm just going to sit here and not. Genesis 1.1. I can't hear the sound of scrolling, so it just must be tablets and phones. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here he is in the foreground. And the Spirit of God, capital S, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. How many of you know this as one of the first Trinitarian verses we see, right? Because we know that the Word of God, the creative power of God, God created through the Son. And, and, and when he spoke, he was creating through the Son. So we have the Father, we have the Son, and here we have the Spirit. Now, what is the Spirit doing the Spirit is hovering above the face of the raw material of the created universe. God didn't just come in and instantly make everything. He created material. He created a dark void. And then he began to organize and create and speak and make it. Over the course of six days and one day of rest, he began to form the world. But in this abyss, in this nothingness, this, just, this raw material, the Spirit of God is hovering. What is the Spirit of God waiting to do? The Spirit of God is waiting because he is the agency of the mind of God that God is deploying to begin to do God's will. So wherever the Spirit, listen, wherever the Spirit is, we can anticipate the working and creative hand of God. Now, I'm not going to have you turn there, but if you were to fast forward to Genesis, uh, again, you, you don't have to turn there, but if you were to fast forward, you can look this up on your own. Genesis chapter 8, verse 11, you find once again, God has sort of started over with creation. Do you remember how he did it? He called a new Adam, told him to get on a boat, took his family, and then God cleansed the earth. The only problem was sin got on the boat, right? Sin got on the boat. That's why within a matter of days, Noah's passed out drunk naked in his tent, because sin was not fully dealt with. But that to the side, God cleansed the earth. He brought it back to a watery abyss, to, to sort of a blank slate. And Noah, the new progenitor of a new humanity, starting over, he steps out of the boat. And what comes to him? A dove. What do we know the dove is symbolic of? It's symbolic of the Spirit of God bringing an olive branch. And this is an amazing moment because it, it, it parallels, it mirrors the Genesis 1 moment where God is about ready to start over. Fresh slate. And the Spirit of God is hovering. The Spirit of God is ready to do work. It's another place where we see in the foreground the Holy Spirit showing up in the redemptive narrative of God. And then we see him again throughout the biblical narrative. We see him in Exodus 31 showing up to fill the temple and showing up to fill the craftsmen that were making the temple and making the tabernacle, right? Because God is always ready. His spirit is always ready to do work and to execute the will of the Godhead, the redemptive will of the Godhead. Now here's where it really, when you keep pulling this thread, here's where it really comes to crescendo. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Go there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. I want you to remember what we just looked at. One of the most important passages in Scripture. Here we see it. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him 
saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us. Who's us? Who's us? It's, I think it's the Godhead. It's fitting for us to fulfill all right. And it could be him and John, but I don't know. I don't think so. For us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John says, okay. This is a very important moment, by the way. This isn't about Jesus being forgiven for sins. Jesus was sinless. This is about Jesus not only instituting the, the Christian uh, sacrament of baptism. This is about Jesus modeling the reality of spirit baptism which is going to break in here in a matter of, of, of years after Jesus' ministry. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, so he's immersed in the water, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw, who? The Spirit of God descending like a dove. So we have a better Noah, a new earth that's about ready to be recreated through a new humanity, Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit hovering over him, ready to do the created agency of God, the, of, of the Godhead himself. And the dove coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What's the connection here between Matthew chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 1? We have a new created reality breaking in. This is a new Genesis moment with a new Adam. And the spirit is what? The spirit is waiting, ever present, ready to do the work of God's will in redemption. The Holy Spirit, my point is simply that the Holy Spirit is always active, always preparing God's salvation plan. And then we fast forward to Acts chapter two, and what do we see? We don't have to go there, but what do we see? We instantly see the, the realization of God's promise. The Holy Spirit comes, and like flaming tongues of fire, whatever that looks like, over the heads of the disciples, the Holy Spirit falls and begins to realize this new thing that God is now doing through the children of God, through his son, Jesus Christ. My point is, when you pull on the thread, the Holy Spirit is there every step of the way. Now, he's not just there in the foreground, he's also in the background. If you read through the Old Testament, you're gonna realize the Holy Spirit was working in every detail to make sure that Jesus came exactly when he came, exactly how he came, exactly how it was said that he would come to do exactly what he needed to do to fulfill all righteousness and to save the world. Who do you think did that? The Holy Spirit did it. The Holy Spirit has always been working to guard the lineage from Adam to David and David to Joseph and Mary. He's been working to write scripture to fill the prophets and speak about how God was going to send his Messiah to save the world. The Holy Spirit has been working through the agency of the Old Testament constantly, all the way from the beginning. Raising up the judges to preserve Israel. You know how many times Israel almost got stamped out completely? Spirit of God would fill one of the judges or would, would lead Samuel or send one of the prophets in order to preserve the line of Israel so that, why? So that God could save the world through his son Jesus that had to come through this line. The Spirit of God and his agency is at work in all of that. So he is not as explicit in the Old Testament, but he is there. The Spirit of God is at work. And the Spirit of God was at work and the life of Christ, leading Jesus, empowering Jesus, guiding Jesus. Jesus, of course, in his own divinity, could have come and done all the power in his own strength, but he chose rather to limit that, to live into his humanity, and to lean on the Holy Spirit so that he could be a model for us of what it looks like to live in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was responsible for leading every step of Christ so that he could be the perfect, spotless lamb so that he could say exactly what he needed to say, so that he could, he could pray exactly what he needed to pray and heal exactly when the Spirit wanted him to heal. So the Holy Spirit was sent to prepare the coming of Christ, but the Holy Spirit was also sent to produce the resulting fruit that came from Christ. The Spirit's work just began when Jesus showed up. Do you realize that? When Jesus showed up, and was born, and lived, and died, what happened next? He rose from the dead. Now, Jesus said, my life, he, he compared his life to a seed. He said, a seed must first go into the ground and die. And then what happens when it dies? It brings forth life. 
What's he talking about there? He's talking about the releasing of the Holy Spirit because of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ on the face of the earth. You guys remember what happened the second Jesus breathed his last on the cross? The veil was torn. And we always think about that, oh, now we get to get into the holy place, but what happened? The holy place came out, and immediately a centurion Gentile was convicted and brought to salvation because the Holy Spirit was released and is now released and active in the world today because of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Jesus went to the right hand of the Father, and he sent his spirit to continue the earthly ministry of Jesus. Did you know the earthly bodily ministry of Jesus is continuing? You are it. You are the body of Christ. And the spirit of Christ lives through the body of Christ. It continues. That's why Luke, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, he says, In the first book, that is Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus, listen, don't miss it, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He began to do and teach because now the spirit of God is continuing to work through the body of Christ and proclaim the gospel through the body of Christ. This idea of baptism, New Testament baptism, it embodies with it not only forgiveness, it embodies within it new life. As Christians, we are baptized into the, the newness of life, the regenerative life of the Holy Spirit. So I know that's a lot of theology, but let's go back and look at our definition one more time. Maybe it'll make a little more sense. The Holy Spirit is a mysterious yet distinct person within the shared essence of the Trinitarian Godhead. He was sent by the collective will of said Godhead as an agent to prepare the coming of Christ and thereafter produce the resulting fruit from his work. It's no mistake that when Jesus in John 15 talks about the abiding vine, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. It's in that same breath that Jesus talks about the Spirit because the Spirit is how God's life now grows through the tree of Jesus. So what do we do with this? What does this matter? Let me just land the plane here. There are four things that this should cause us to do. There are four responses that we should. You know, theology is not about knowledge. Theology should lead to worship, right? If theology doesn't lead to worship and we're not looking at it correctly, this should lead us to, to, to have some kind of responses to these realities. Let me, give you, let me give you four. The first thing this should cause us to do is, or this, the, the first thing this should lead us to is acknowledgement. If you want to write it down, acknowledgement. We need to stop this morning, and we need to stop as a church, and we need to begin to think of what it would look like to acknowledge the personhood and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, it is true that the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. So it's not as though if you don't mention Him in a prayer, you're neglecting Him. That's not what I mean. Jesus taught us to pray to the Father. And when we pray to the Father, the Spirit will come. So you don't have to remember, oh, I didn't mention the Holy Spirit, now he's not gonna work. Okay, it's not, it's not, again, he's not a tube to be squeezed. We're not trying to manipulate his power. But what would it look like for us to consider this week and today the personhood and the personality and the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit? We need to acknowledge that and we need to know him. Well, how do we know him? We largely know him through what we know of Jesus Christ because he is the spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay, we know the spirit by knowing the son and seeing who he is and we know the spirit through interaction, through relationship. Okay, so we need to, number one, we need to acknowledge the Holy Spirit. Number two, this should lead us to not only acknowledgement, it should lead us to worship. He is God. He deserves all honor. He deserves all praise. Okay, how do we worship the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not so much about just remembering to mention him. It's about yielding to the leading of the Holy Spirit. You want to worship the Holy Spirit? Be filled with him. Abide in the vine. Abide in Christ. And, and, and let his fruit come through you. Yield, surrender to the Holy Spirit. That's the Christian's job, is to yield to the, to the, to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Number three, and this is a little bit of a bigger point here. Number three, it should lead to receptivity receptivity. You read the book of Acts, you're going to find that the apostles were deadly serious about making sure that everyone had received the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we'll get into this later. I don't think there's some kind of second baptism that needs to happen. I don't believe that. But I do believe that as Christians, we need to be aware of this new power, this new reality that has become available in the era that we live in. You guys read the Old Testament, you're going to begin to see this future anticipation of how God was going to release his spirit on the world. And the Old Testament saints didn't get to realize that like you did. Do you know how spoiled you are? Not only do you have the whole counsel of God's word, you are post-Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is here, present, active in a way that he never was in the Old Testament. God talked about this thing for years through the prophets. He said in Ezekiel 36, he said, uh, 36, 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I'll put it within you. This is the promise. Yes. Thank you, Lord. Do you guys really, we're just, we're spoiled evangelicals, man. We're so spoiled. He goes, are we thankful for this gift that the Old Testament saints longed to realize that the Holy Spirit has been poured out because Jesus has come and made atonement and the kingdom of God is now breaking in in a radical way through the Spirit of God. Are we acknowledging that? Are we acknowledging that Joel chapter 2 verse 28, God prophesied it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy, old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. That means every strata of socioeconomic culture will have access to the presence and the power of God. You realize that the book of Acts is radical because we see the Spirit of God not just working through a few men in the temple, He's working through every gender, every class, every person. That's what's so beautiful about the body of Christ is the Holy Spirit is working through every member in radical ways. We are a kingdom of priests. We live in the time that realized what all of these saints longed to see. We're so blessed. And Jesus talked about it in John 7, 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, you guys know this verse. This is a famous verse, but I want to I put a little twist on it. If, he says, if anyone thirsts, now, this, this, this was a moment in the feast where, where typically the high priest or somebody would march around with this jar of water, and then they would pour it out. Okay, we know that from history. So this moment, Jesus stands up. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to, not the temple, not the priest, who? Me. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about who? About the Spirit. Now here's the twist. We, we usually read that and we go, oh, out of my heart will flow rivers of living water. But if you look at that more closely, you'll realize that Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage. And that Old Testament passage is linked to the Messiah. What Jesus is actually saying, I think, is out of his heart will flow rivers, torrents of living water. Out of the heart of Christ. See, Jesus opened the veil. And it's in Christ that we now have access to this living water. It's a beautiful reality. And that's why Jesus told the disciples, before you go, before you do the mission, before you go make disciples, go get the Spirit. Now, it wasn't about the location. It wasn't about the place. Okay, we don't have to go to whatever revival to go get the Spirit and bring him back. That's, that's not how it works. But we do, as Christians, we do need to be ready and acknowledging that there is the power and the presence of God available. And that's what we're going to spend the next four weeks really thinking about. My last point, and we'll close here, the last thing this should bring us to respond with is, write it down, expectancy. Remember, I took you to Genesis chapter one. We saw the spirit of God. What was he doing? He was hovering over the face of the waters. Why was he hovering there? Because he was expectant, waiting to do God's creative will, God's creative life. I just wanna tell you that right now, just like at Pentecost, the spirit of God is hovering over this body, over your life, over this church, waiting and willing and ready to do work. What kind of work? Resurrection work. What does that mean? means he wants to fix the broken places in your life. 
It means he wants to heal the dad wounds and the father wounds and the mother wounds. It means he wants to recreate the parts of your life that are so embarrassing and so dark and so broken that you don't feel like you can ever bring them out. The Spirit of God wants to use the gospel to bring healing and cleansing and recreation and regeneration over every single part of your life. The Holy Spirit right now is hovering over your life, waiting for you by the power of the gospel and what Jesus has done to let him do work, to let him flesh out the dry bones of your life, to let him heal and cleanse the stuff that no therapist is going to be able to fix. Deeper stuff, deeper stuff than anyone can get to. The Holy Spirit is waiting. He's ready. See, just like he was there in Genesis 1-1 over the raw, uncreated material, or the, the raw, uh, not formed material of the world, he is right over the top of your life, ready and willing. You just say yes. You just say yes. It's, it's, it's saying, I'm going to choose to believe the gospel. And I'm going to choose to believe that Jesus didn't just die as an example. He died as a reality. He died to not only give me new life, he died to send his spirit so that the, the spirit could start to regenesis my life now. Not just in heaven, but now. God wants to do a new Genesis 1 thing in your life. And the spirit of God is present in that. And he lives inside of you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that phenomenal? Father, Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you, God, that you didn't leave us here disconnected from your presence. That Genesis 3 was not the end of the story. Driving our, our mother and our father, Adam and Eve, out of your presence and, and barring us from it was not the end of the story that God, your redemptive story continued, that you sent your spirit into a broken world to show grace and to begin a, a human line starting with Abraham, moving to David and all throughout that would lead to God the Son coming in to pay our sin debt, to live the perfect life for us, to be resurrected, to become the seed of an entirely new reality, to send your spirit into this world. And we believe that your Holy Spirit is here, present, wanting to bring healing, wanting to bring faith, wanting to bring belief, wanting to bring growth and the fruit of the spirit. Jesus, you're the vine. We're the branches. And so, Lord, I just want to pray on behalf of all my brothers and sisters here at Philippi. Lord, we're ready. We're ready for you to do whatever you want to do with us. And Holy Spirit, you, you are welcome. And we don't just mean that in like we want goosebumps. We mean that like maybe it's conviction. Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's sorrow. Whatever, whatever it is that you need to do in us, we are your temple. Lord, sanctify us. We pray your kingdom come in this place. Give us open hands, Lord, with our, our resources and our time and our emotional bandwidth. Help us to be willing, like you were, Jesus, to give your life, to choose pain and suffering if it means we obey to make you first and make us second. Lord, we give up this, this obsession with the American dream and we say we want to follow you, Jesus. We want your spirit to lead us into whatever it is that you want us to do. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.